I'm Jonathan Larson and this is The Conversation. And today I wanna talk about a horror story within the horror story of the pandemic that's been going on criminally underreported around the country. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later. Right now, I wanna talk about this amazing audio that we have out there of Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. And I wanna bring in the guy who got that audio, Dave Leventhal, the senior Washington correspondent for Insider. Dave, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be cruel a little bit and hold off on playing the the audio. Uh, and there's a lot of it which people can find in your article. We're gonna play one of my favorite clips. But but let's just start off and set the scene a little bit. Who is Mike Lindell for people who don't follow that particular sideshow of of Trump world? Mike Lindell is the CEO of the My Pillow Company, and you've probably seen him on commercials or infomercials. If you follow politics, you'll know him as a tried and true, very dedicated and loyal supporter of former President Donald Trump. So either in a business context or a political context, Mike Lindell is has increased his profile, let us say, to a very significant degree over the past couple of years. And, and played a, a pretty significant role in the whole election fraud stuff coming, uh, you know, culminating in the January 6th attacks, which now have him in legal trouble. Do I have that right? He has been at the forefront of the Stop the Steal movement, and in particular, his cast incredible doubt on the validity of the machines that have been used in voting during the 2020 election cycle. And to this day, vows that the election just simply was unfair and rigged and wrong and illegal and is yes, absolutely under a massive legal cloud at this point because of the voting machine companies or one in particular Dominion going after Mike Lindell for what they consider to be out and out slander. Because he he named them and just said, I think these guys are crooks or crooked or something and with with no regard to the consequences. Do I, I basically have that right? And continues to do so. And continues to do so. So, so how did Lindell get on your radar? What walk us up to how you ended up on the phone with the guy? Well, it's an open secret in politics that if you uh, sign up to give your name, your email address, your phone number to a political campaign, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. That information can become pretty valuable, okay? And what is less known is that that information can be rented to other political campaigns. It can be sold, it becomes a commodity. So I was just doing some very preliminary research into doing a story about how that has evolved and how that will continue to evolve. So in the course of doing so, I was talking to a couple of Republican consultants who I've known for years, and we got talking about Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. And in the course of doing so, I looked on My Pillow's website to see what its policy is for sharing data. If a customer buys a My Pillow or any of the other products on My Pillow's website, what can they trust? What what's going to happen potentially to their data? And the bottom line, Jonathan, is that the the privacy policy that they put on their website is at best it contradicts itself, and at worst it indicates that information gets sold. So I did what I've done thousands of times in my career. I contacted my pillow and I asked the question to them. I put the question to them. All right, so I'm reading this thing. I I, I see what it says, but I'm getting two different answers here. So. What's up? And about two hours later, I got a phone call from a 
Minneapolis area code and picked it up thinking it was spam and lo and behold, it was Mike Lindell. And so, so tell us what happened then. Do you do you immediately start recording? Uh, did he know you wanted to record him? And, and tell us about the conversation. Well, uh, it was pretty clear within about four seconds of him being on the phone. Uh, first of all, I, I heard his voice and knew immediately who it was, having heard his voice on on television and radio and whatnot uh, many times over. So I was sitting at my computer, hit record, and uh, you know, legally you can do so and in DC and he made it very clear that he was recording this call too. And he was absolutely livid, livid that I was asking these questions, livid at the notion that my pillow would be selling information. He immediately denied that that my pillow ever did such a thing and in threatened all sorts of things, lawsuits, legal action on me, on my sources, you name it. He was a he was a very unhappy my pillow guy at, at that point in time. So, in the first three minutes of the conversation, I also realized that I wanted to ask him lots of questions and hopefully was going to keep him on the phone for a long time too. And so, what was the upshot? Were they were they selling people's information? What what were they doing? Well, the upshot is he was he was unaware of the way that this policy read on his website. So, after a few minutes of of him being very upset, I was finally able to get in a word edgewise, and I said, "Well, look, <laughs> let me slow you down here. I, I'd like to read something that appears on your website. I'm not accusing you of anything, Mike Lindell. Nobody is accusing you of anything. I'm I'm trying to." Be a journalist here. I'm trying to ask questions about something that I'm legitimately confused about. So can you give me an answer to what is going on? And as soon as I read what was on his website to him, he he stopped and went completely in the other direction. And in fact, was was thanking me for bringing this to his attention. But the conversation, and if you listen to it in the story, you'll you'll <laughs> hear for yourself. Kind of took this weird sitcomy twist where he he called up. Todd, the IT guy from My Pillow, and got him on the call and started ranting and raving at him, and and then uh, Todd kind of threw the former lawyer for My Pillow under the bus, and Mike Lindell actually conferenced in the former lawyer for My Pillow, Joe, the quote unquote stupid lawyer, who then got on the phone and was trying to tell Mike Lindell not to have a conversation with him with a reporter on the phone. Anyway, so it, was, it got weird fast. This, uh, was, this was my favorite part, and this is the this is the chunk I want to play. So just so people and and actually, I want to explain afterwards why this makes me like Mike Lindell, or at least what I heard from him in this chunk. So in this chunk, he's telling his lawyer that he's got you conferenced in, and he's essentially asking his lawyer to have a conversation with him. The lawyer's client in front of this third party, which is obviously the last thing any lawyer is going to counsel. So um, let's let's take a listen to that clip if we can play that right now. Dave's on the phone right now, and, and uh, I want to yeah, put Mike. By the way, Mike, uh, uh, having this conversation with someone else on the phone uh, is is not is not a good idea. Well, I, you know what, Joe? They're going to print mud on me right now, so I really don't care if it's a good idea. I want I want this to tell this guy I'm very disclosed with the with the media, 
and he's putting he wants an explanation. So either he puts it out with it with you saying, Oh, you can't have him on the thing. I want you I want you right now to come out of your mouth. I don't care. Tell him the truth. That's I, I just want you to tell him the truth. So I don't need to uh, Jim, hang up the phone, and then he thinks we collaborated something, Joe. This is really important. Just say, Mike, just... Mike, Mike, hey, take a, take a deep breath, all right? <laughs> that part just kills me. The lawyer telling the CEO, take a deep breath. So um, I, I, I promised I would say why I love that clip, but Tell me what's going through your mind, and then and then sort of wrap it up. How did things how did things resolve? Well, you know, we never found evidence at my pillow. I should note this. You know, my, I've never found any evidence that my my pillow actually sells its customers information. The lawyer denied it. Mike Lindell denied it. We don't have anything to suggest that they are wrong in in that. All we were going from, all I was going from, was quite literally what appeared on my pillow's own website. So we went back and forth. Mike Lindell and I talked about Trump. We talked about Dominion. He continued to uh, to say very pointed things about Dominion uh, and that the election was rigged. And ultimately, um, you know, he kind of started or ended the conversation where he started, which was threatening legal action against me and getting back to that. Uh, but about two hours later, I went back and I checked my pillow's website. And even within just that span of time, um, one thing did happen, which was that my pillow's privacy disclosures on its own website changed notably and very much right at the top of the website in clear bold type, you can go there now. It says, we do not sell your information. So it obviously made quite an impression on Mike Lindell, who was not very happy that this was Right on his own website, under his nose for probably months, if not years. Well, I will say what what I first of all, it's it's amazing that you got this and that you sort of had the composure to just let them go on and on. But I will say that what I found admirable was his willingness not to hide behind the the legal shield that he could have hid behind, and he was being transparent to an extent. That you don't always find people being so. I I thought that was kind of admirable. It's obviously a positive thing that people's um, uh, personal data was not being sold off in, in a way that would be problematic. So um, it's just an amazing story. Uh, do, do you have any last thoughts on it, real quick, before well, we go? I mean, to his great credit, uh, very few CEOs will call you up on your cell phone uh, after making a standard email form inquiry to a company and and just be as open. Now you could love Mike Lindell or load the guy, but he was on the phone with me for 32 minutes talking about the whole thing. And well, we we obviously have the audio to have everyone listen to it as they please. Well, people should go listen to the audio at Insider and, and read the article. It's It's an amazing piece of work. Dave Leventhal from Insider, thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm Jonathan Larson, and this is The Conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a criminally underreported story going on, a horror story that's been unfolding since the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, there is a really important new piece on it. And I wanted to bring in the author of that piece, the reporter and writer behind it, Amy Littlefield, freelance journalist uh, who wrote the article that I'm talking about for a recent issue of The Nation magazine. Amy, thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's great to be with you. So the the what I found fascinating about about the piece, this was actually something I had thought about and kind of kept an, a, a side eye out, waiting to see coverage about this. Was uh, essentially access to abortion um, for women during the pandemic. We've heard a lot about other health issues, obviously related to the pandemic. It hasn't felt to me like we've seen a, a, a real strong focus on this until your piece. It's certainly possible that I've missed some. And one of the things I found fascinating about it was the layers of intersectionality here are just kind of staggering. Obviously gender, the, the obvious one, but also it, it, it disproportionately, as with so other, so many other health issues in the pandemic, it disproportionately hits women of color, Young women, obviously, poor women, people with uh, you know your your article starts off with a woman wearing a, a, a um, I forget what what you said for it. Thank you. Um, in in the article, so there's so many layers to this, and and I I want to drill into some of those, but I want to start off with your assessment of what what has happened, the beginning and throughout to abortion access around the country through this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, um, thanks so much for framing it that way. You know, I think we have to first take a step back and realize that abortion access was in crisis in this country before COVID hit. And that crisis hit people differently depending on where they lived and depending on their economic circumstances and the you know inequalities they were already facing in their lives. So many states have all but regulated abortion out of existence. And in some cases, such as South Dakota, we saw that COVID was sort of the final straw that you know knocked out abortion access in that state for seven months because the last clinic in South Dakota just couldn't operate anymore. It was that COVID was the was the last hit that sort of knocked knocked the lights out in that clinic. Um, in other cases, we saw states really seize opportunistically on the pandemic as a, a chance to do what they've wanted to do for some time, which is ban abortion. And they did so under the guise of preserving PPE and calling it a non-essential service, which you know, for people who were pregnant, especially at that time, um, felt like there was nothing more essential in the world, right, than being able to have bodily autonomy. Um, and you know, in many ways, we saw this sort of dress rehearsal or dry run for what it could look like when the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, and we have whole regions of this country that might ban abortion outright or at least heavily restrict it. Um, I think there's another side to that, which is we saw these sort of openings um, in abortion access during the course of the pandemic. We saw a lot of people turning to um, methods of self-managing abortion and supporting each other through self-managing abortion outside of the sort of traditional clinic model. And we saw abortion funds, which are these grassroots organizations that exist to help people access abortions that they couldn't otherwise afford. We saw them really accomplish these amazing feats of, of heroism, really, I would argue, in order to get people to the care that they needed. I mean, down to you know one abortion fund that serves native patients um, actually managed to find someone to uh, take a private airplane and fly to pick up a patient in Montana and fly her to Colorado because it was her last chance to secure an abortion after she'd spent months trying to raise the money to afford it. 
And there was there was one case um, I, I I was very interested in in the, the the sort of heroes that you, that you refer to. There was one case I may be conflating some of the details. This might have been the the bartender who um, <laughs> drove I think with members of his family perhaps in the car mm-hmm. with the person that they're transporting, and and he contemplates uh, I guess talking with you he contemplates a future in which. Even the facilitation of an abortion could become a felony in his state. And he says, I anticipate that I'll continue doing it if that's the case. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that character, Will Anderson, because there, you know, there are many people who you might least expect <laughs> in this country who are standing up for abortion access. And and Will and Caitlin Anderson. You know, needed access to an abortion themselves, um, and they have three kids. They couldn't afford another one. And um, Caitlin went to the abortion clinic in South Dakota. And when access was shut down at that abortion clinic during the pandemic, they, you know, picked up a stranger in their car, put their two sons in in the back seat, and you know, vowed to do what it, it took. And so, and and yes, they are among the many people in this country who are saying, regardless of what the law is, we will stand up for abortion access. You know, and and I think it's it's really beautiful to look to these examples. It's also important to acknowledge that, given the sort of feats of heroism that were required, many people, and we don't know exactly how many, were not able to get to the care that they needed and were forced to stay pregnant when they didn't want to be. And they they ended up having babies. Presumably. And we can assume that. Yeah, yes. exactly. Exactly. I, it did have some statistic in there. I think there were some estimates like individual states estimated maybe hundreds of people in some states, but but I think it's a fair Assumption that hundreds and possibly thousands of women across the country may have had children that they did not want to have, that they were perhaps had really important valid reasons not to want to have because of not just the pandemic, but because of the draconian measures that were implemented during the pandemic. Does that does that sound roughly right? Right, right. I mean, and and of course, this was the case even before COVID, and this just became one more layer on top of it. You know, for example, you mentioned the the case of Lorada Lee, who's the patient I mentioned in the story who sought an abortion in Ohio. You know, she had to go into a clinic on a Friday, spend a few hours there, have an ultrasound, undergo a counseling process, sign a bunch of paperwork, and then leave and come back on a Monday. To you know, get the first step in her medication abortion regimen that she wanted. That's because Ohio has a 24-hour waiting period. It's also a state where you can't get your Medicaid plan to pay for abortion, and so you know, Lorada was able to access money from an abortion fund to pay for that. But there's all of these different barriers that then became you know potentially frightening um, risk. You know, you could contract COVID when you're having to do make those extra visits, and you're putting medical staff at risk. Um, so yeah, we don't know exactly. We know that close to a thousand patients in the state of Texas um, sought care outside of that state during the month of April alone, when there was this sort of revolving door of clinic closures because of the legal battle over the state's attempt to ban abortion there. Um, but we can't say exactly how many people, you know, were not able to get the care they needed. Does is your sense as we start to get a glimpse of life after the pandemic is your sense that that 
these measures in, I guess it's maybe a dozen, 18 states or so. Um, <laughs> do, do those measures feel like they, the, they've successfully used the pandemic to further encroach on uh, abortion and reproductive rights in those states? Or is this more of a temporary wave that gets rolled back? I think this was more of a temporary wave. I think, you know, it remains to be seen. I think a lot of what you're seeing at the state level is um, law after law after law that's aimed at sort of giving the Supreme Court its range of options in terms of which case it might use to, you know, overhaul the existing precedent on abortion access. There's um, that, but and, I think and just I just want to jump in there. Mm-hmm. I, I believe I'm right about this. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's a concerted effort among the various states to throw a whole range of cases up there of laws specifically to give the Supreme Court what amounts to a menu of of options to act on Roe v. Wade. Do I, do I have that right? Of course, and they'll have no shortage of cases out there. There are many cases in the pipeline already, and and even more making their way up there. And you know, the Trump administration succeeded in packing those courts, lower courts, on their way up to the Supreme Court as well. But I think there's a really important chilling effect too, and it can't be overstated. A lot of people assume that abortion is illegal or inaccessible because of these attempted bans and the way that they're discussed. And so it is important to state for now, (laughs) abortion is legal everywhere and there are a range of ways to access it. um, Both in the sort of traditional way and in in sort of different non-traditional ways online. Well, that's a really good setup for uh, just quickly before we go. Anyone who reads the article at The Nation, which I highly recommend or or has watched this and wants to help, what can they do? I think one thing is pay attention to what's happening at your state legislature. Because almost all of the really harmful anti-choice policies we've seen that are important have been at the state level. And find out what your local abortion fund is doing and how to get involved with them. Because these are the groups that are sort of the heart of the grassroots movement in terms of preserving abortion access. Great, Amy Littlefield, freelance journalist. The article is in the nation, it's up on the website. I highly recommend people go check it out. Amy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you.